Everybody, turn your Bibles, please, to the 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. And other passages that we will look at, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, we'll also look at uh, Isaiah 52 and 3, Psalms 16, the latter part that Larry read earlier, and also Psalms 22. This week on TV, in fact, I believe there will be some on today, at least according to the last report I had yesterday, there has been a hearing going on concerning uh, the man that has been nominated for the Supreme Court. I think most of you have seen at least some of, of that hearing. The purpose of uh, the things I'm going to use in the lesson this morning, we're going to look at some material that we've looked at a number of times before, but I thought it would be good to look at it again with some thoughts in mind that have come out in this hearing uh, that have re-emphasized things that we have taught and discussed before as information that is essential in evaluating evidences and coming to a knowledge of truth. Now, I'm thinking about the case that's going on with Clarence Thomas and his being nominated by the Supreme Court and the hearing that is taking place now because of a, a young lady that has made a very serious accusation against him, and this committee is to arrive at some conclusion of whether or not she is lying uh, or he is lying. One of the two are lying, and whether or not he is to be confirmed. Well, our concern this morning is not to get into that and try and determine who is lying or making any observation there one way or the other. That would be totally wrong. That's not, our, that's not our position here. We're talking about the hearing itself and, and some things about evidence. First of all, she made a, an accusation uh, concerning some things that he said 10 years before. Even though they were made 10 years ago, that the committee and the Congress was concerned enough that they called a hearing on this, even though it happened 10 years ago. Next, as they began to call the people, another point came out, and that is that the reason they were willing to hear this is because she is a credible witness. And by that, they mean that uh, if she had been some individual that had been fired by Clarence Thomas. If she had been some individual that had a, a long string of reputation of wrong, a reputation of wrongdoing, well then they wouldn't have heard it. But because her reputation, at least to the point they knew at that time, I don't know what new will happen, was credible. I mean, here is somebody that is a professor at a university and who worked with him who's a graduate of Yale Law School and who has a good work record and even Thomas himself has been complimentary of her. So she is a credible witness and so we, we learn something right away. And that is that although there can be any number of people that can claim to be a witness of something, there is a difference between a credible witness and one that is not. And you can actually have a plurality of so-called witnesses, but if each of those are not considered credible, you have nothing. 
On the other hand, you can have one person who's a credible witness and you have something. You don't have proof. Now, that's another thing we've learned, haven't we? If we've kept up with it. Is there anybody on either side of that issue willing to say absolutely without any doubt in their mind that they believe one or the other is lying? They're not. Because that although she is a credible witness, she is only one, at least so far. Only one. And what has come out as you've listened to these uh, congressmen, and by the way, they are all lawyers, as you have listened to them talk, you have come to the realization that even if something is true, it cannot be proven on the basis of one witness. It may be true, but you cannot prove it on the basis of one witness. In fact, the claim that Thomas himself is making, and a lot agree with him, is that it should not be there because there's only one witness involved, and whenever you have one witness, this person cannot disprove because nobody else was around and this person cannot prove and so his claim is that since you have a situation that cannot be proved or disproved then it's just an effort in futility and of course from his standpoint it can throw a blemish on his name so we learned another thing there and that is that even if you have a credible witness one is not sufficient in other words in the realm of religion as you consider the religions, whether it's Mohammed or Joseph Smith, who claimed to be a prophet and saw some things, or any other person, Father Divine, uh, Mary Eddie Baker, Ella uh, G. White, what these people would be saying to us are Jesus Christ. What these people would be saying to us is that if there is only one witness, and even if that witness is credible, one witness cannot constitute proof to anybody's mind. Nobody can say absolutely they know for sure when only one witness is involved. Another thing that they're saying to us is that with any number of witnesses, in order for them to be worthy even of, even of a hearing, they have to be credible. They have to have a certain reputation for honesty, a certain reputation for integrity, a certain amount of reputation for the handling of facts, a certain ability to understand and interpret facts. And only if they have that can they be considered a credible witness. And so we've, we've learned that so far in the testimony. We've learned something else. As this credible witness testifies, and if you notice, they keep asking her questions, sometimes the same questions over and over again, and they keep asking him questions over and over again, sometimes the same one. And one man will come back the next day and ask him almost exactly the same question that was asked the day before for somebody else, but worded in a little different way. And then as they begin to follow up on that question, what we can see is happening is they're looking for contradictions, aren't they? And so one man yesterday, in reference to her testimony, said, I find three different contradictions and uh, when she first gave a statement to the FBI, the first time she said to somebody else for the press, and then what she said to us. And he went back and read each of the testimonies and pointed out what he believed to be contradictions uh, in, in those terms. And so we can see something there, that they recognize that truth is harmonious. Uh, that anytime there's contradictions, that that is evidence that we're dealing with some untruths. Of course, I'm not saying there's no contradictions there. That's not our purpose. I'm saying that we're looking at how they evaluate information. 
All right, then there was a man yesterday that took these statements that supposedly was made by Thomas, and he found those statements in other writings. And said it didn't that and, and his uh, observation was it could be that that she got it's interesting that these same statements were made in other writings that is used relative to him and it's writings involving law cases and one of them a law case in Oklahoma and so his observation there that that uh, I have evidence that this kind of information was put in her mind from another source but anyway what we can see is that they are trying, trying to arrive at a conclusion. And we can see that they cannot arrive at a conclusion without a sufficient amount of evidence. And some have already said that they believe it will be cloudy at the end because there is not enough available evidence. So we can see that when you take people's mind away from the emotion of something, say like religion, you know, some people say, I believe such and such. Well, we're seeing something. We're seeing that in reality, the human mind does not believe in anything without doubt unless it is intellectually convinced by evidence. And now the human mind can have a degree of belief. For example, when this ends, there will be those that will say, I think she's telling the truth. And there will be those that will say, I think he is telling the truth. But neither side unless more evidence comes out, we'll be able to say, I know, will it? They can only say, I think. So the, the very nature of our mind is that before we can know something, before we can believe without a doubt, there is required evidence. And then once you believe without a doubt, for example, is there any doubt in anybody's mind that if sufficient evidence can be presented that will cause them to believe without a doubt that he said that, is there anybody that believes he will be confirmed? He won't even have a Republican voting for him. But on the other hand, if, if evidence can be presented to convince beyond a doubt that she is lying, I'd say he might, he might wind up with more votes than he would have had in the first place if that, if that proves to be the case because you're going to have an entire indignant American population if, 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 if somebody doesn't want him that much that they're willing to concoct that kind of a lie. But the point is, it takes evidence to convince beyond a doubt. Now, step five, forget about the case there. Did you know that most of the cases that are heard in court are of that nature? And some have a little more evidence. Did you know that most cases that are heard by courts and juries are of such a nature that most of the people would not be willing to say that I know without any doubt in my mind when they're through? You know why? Because the cases that are of such a nature that you can know without any doubt in your mind, the individual just simply pleads guilty. They know they don't have a chance. And they plea bargain and they try to get off on, a, on the lesser penalty. And, and so that you very seldom have a case come before a judge and jury, but that the issue, even when all the evidence is presented, is only going to be such that you can say, I say that the evidence favors this or favors that, but there still might be an element of doubt in your mind. Remember the young man in Atlanta uh, who was tried with the 28 black men that were killed some years back and they tried him on two of the cases and sent him away to life in prison and we've talked about that before as an illustration. Do you know what's happening on that right now? 
the case is back out and they're going to try it again. We see more evidence has come forward. That man was sent to life in prison based on evidence that caused people to say, yes, I believe that he did it. But obviously it was not the type of evidence that would cause them to say without any doubt in my mind. Otherwise they wouldn't be trying to get a trial now. They're saying that we have got sufficient evidence to cause doubt in that situation. Most cases are in that category. And what are we saying through all of that? Man is very intelligent. And he has the ability to evaluate information. And he's very perceptive. Giving a sufficient amount of evidence, he can believe without a doubt in his mind. But if the evidence does not approach that point of completeness, there will always be the element of doubt. All right, now think for a minute about Jesus. The belief that is demanded of Christian in the New Testament in order to be fully accepted by God is it one that will allow for a mind full of doubts about that which you claim to believe for example when the New Testament deals with prayer what does it say will be the answer from God if in your prayer, although you believe to a very high degree, there is that lingering element of doubt in your mind? What happens to that prayer according to the New Testament? Not heard. How did Jesus respond to disciples when he told them they had the authority to, to perform a miracle and an element of doubt kept them from carrying it out. And he said, oh, ye of little faith. The point is, they couldn't perform without complete faith, could they? An element of doubt. What happened to Peter when he began to walk on the water and an element of doubt went through his mind? He began to sink. To be the type of people that God can use takes a complete faith. I suggest to you that one of the reasons for worldliness, lukewarmness, indifference, people who refuse to give as they have been prospered by God, refuse to give of their, of their time and their energies and their talent in a sacrificial way, one of the reasons is that they have not been fully convinced in their own mind. They've not reached that point where they are convinced beyond any doubt in their mind. And I suggest to you the people that will go and do and sacrifice and give or will stay and do and sacrifice and give uh, have been convinced uh, in, the, in their own mind. So it's very important uh, that people can say all they want to. Well, I just believe. And individuals can get up and preach. Let Jesus come into your heart. And people, people can respond to that. But the truth is, you see, that might sound impressive in our society that, that looks favorably upon people that believe. The truth is that your intellectual mind will not embrace without an element of doubt unless you are convinced by a sufficient amount of evidence. Now, with that in mind, I want you to look at this passage we're all familiar with. And I want you to think what would happen if the case that's being tried right now before the Congress was based on this kind of evidence. Okay? Verse 3. 
Paul says, what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Okay, let's look at this. First of all, before we look at the other, he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, buried and raised according to the scriptures. Okay, it is his claim, the scriptures that Paul had was what you and I call the Old Testament. And it's his claim that everything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was in the Old Testament scriptures that were completed 400 years before Christ was even born. And by the way, that's not theory, that's fact, that part of it. People might say this particular prophet, and they may debate over whether he wrote here or there, and uh, you might have a hundred year span or something, but to say that the Old Testament was completed about 400 years before Christ, we're talking about concrete, hardcore fact. Well, flip over here, and again, all I'm trying to do here, we know all of this. Look at chapter 52, and starting with verse 13. I want to help you appreciate, as we go through here, that you and I have every single solitary piece of evidence that's necessary to believe without a doubt in our minds. There's just no excuse for not knowing. Okay, look at verse 13 of chapter 52. And as we read this, think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the events in the life of Christ that happened in the first century. My servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured among that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? In other words, who's going to believe this? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he's poured out his life unto death, was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now flip on back to Psalms 16, the passage that Larry read earlier, beginning with verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then come over here to Psalms 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night you're not silent. You are enthroned as the Holy One, the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. You brought me out of the womb. You made me trust. In you, even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. Trouble is near. There's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Basia encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths against me. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Verse 27. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. What do you think would happen right now? If we have this event going on. If just five years ago. Five years ago. Gene Dixon. Wrote. That a man was going to be put up. For the Supreme Court. And someone would come forth with an accusation, and there would be a trial by the Senate, and then she would have the result that he would wind up being confirmed or not confirmed. Do you think there would be a newspaper in the land that that wouldn't be all over the front pages? There wouldn't be, would there? And of course, you and I know that we read a few of hundreds. It depicts a servant who has to suffer because other people have sinned. They kill him, but the grave can't hold him. He conquers death. The end result is 
This event is made known to the whole world. And people from all over the world will praise God because of him. That is a summation of those passages that were there. So, think of Clarence Thomas and Gene Dixon wrote on this five years ago. The Old Testament was completed 400 years before Christ even came. Now, let's look at this. What if, what if today in the hearings, I don't know what's going to happen today, what if today in the hearings we have one creditable witness, you know, and I don't know what, they may discredit her before it's over with, I don't know, but one creditable witness right now. Let's say they don't discredit her. What would happen if today in the hearings 12 other females came forth who all had credibility, who all had integrity, who all had contact with Clarence Thomas, and each of those 12 with proven integrity and with nothing to gain themselves, in fact, let's make it better. Let's say all 12 are conservative Republicans that believe abortion is wrong. So here come 12 ladies, conservative Republicans, that believe abortion is wrong, have the same values as Thomas. They really would like to have him on the Supreme Court. They're people of integrity, and one by one by one, all 12 give the same kind of tale that she has given. Would there be any doubt in your mind? But what then if there were 500 others who were out there hollering, we'd like to testify too because he said similar things to us. They wouldn't even have a hearing, would they? The evidence, he would resign. In fact, if that kind of thing existed, we wouldn't be at this stage because he would have said a long time ago, hey, let's stop this process. He wouldn't even go through it. A murderer or a thief, if there were 13 eyewitnesses of people of integrity and 500 other people that saw the crime, and Gene Dixon wrote about it three weeks ago, you think he's going to go before a judge and jury and, and plead he's innocent? No, he's not. Most of the cases, the vast majority of cases that come before our courts do not come with this kind of obvious evidence that you have for the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you say, well, let's look at the guys then. What does the, the non-Christian say about the Apostle Paul? Does he agree that Paul was a character who lived and was a devout Jew and tried to stamp out Christianity? and didn't want it to be true, and that he was converted, and, and went 180 degrees the other way, and, and wrote uh, 13 letters at least of the New Testament, and advocated Christianity, and gave his life for it. Is there any non-Christian scholar who doesn't believe that? No. No, you can't find him. Oh, you might find some nut out here, or some dishonest person, or somebody that's so biased and says, I don't believe that. Sure, you can say that. But I'm saying you will not find a historian no matter what he believes, whether he's a Jewish historian, a Christian historian, or a Muslim historian, or an infidel historian, who will say that anything but Paul was a man of integrity, 
He was a devout Jew. He tried to stamp out Christianity. He claims he had this experience. This is what happened to him afterwards. Everybody's in agreement with that. What about Peter? Anybody want to say, is there any historian out there that says that Peter didn't exist? That Peter was not a Jew? That Peter didn't spend three and a half years with Jesus? That uh, Peter didn't go to his death on behalf of Christianity? No. Well, what about Peter? Was he biased in favor of Christianity when he met Christ? No, he was biased against him. Lord, I'll never let this happen to you. And when it happened, he denied him three times. What about James, the brother of Jesus? Total unbeliever. James didn't become a believer until after the resurrection. What about Thomas? What about the other Jews? Jesus was not what they had been taught to look for, really, by their religious leaders of that day, was he? And yet here is the, here's what they're saying. Think about Paul. Think about Peter. Think about James and John. Think about Thomas. Think about Matthew the publican. Think about even Judas the betrayer who said, I have betrayed innocent blood and goes out and hangs himself. Think about the fact that 3,000 people were converted in the very city where they crucified him with the empty tomb right there within walking distance. And think about the Old Testament scriptures. Jean Dixon in her wildest imagination and never did anything that even compared to that. There is nothing that God could do to make the evidence any stronger than it is, other than in some way to tamper with our mind and force us to believe something against our will. There is nobody out there that believes anything about any political party, about any event, that has the kind of credibility, the kind of evidence behind it, that you and I have for this. We have every reason to know, no wonder Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he's able to keep that, which I've entrusted to him. Don't you see what that does to us when you think that way? It means you don't have to think about your death with doubt concerning your resurrection. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a little apprehension about death. Jesus didn't want to go through the suffering and the anguish and the mockery of the cross and pray to God on behalf, but he had no doubt of what was going to be the end result. So I'm not saying that you should not have some apprehension about the fact that you might have to die of cancer or a heart attack or, or some lingering illness or something like that. We all have that. But I'm saying you don't have to have any doubt whatsoever concerning your resurrection and the eternal nature of your spirit and the eternal life that you have in God. We may not understand all the particulars out there that haven't happened yet, but there needs to be no doubt about the eternal nature of our spirit and our living eternity. Well, then look how that affects your attitude towards death. It means you don't have to have any doubt about God's providential care, that God causes all things from a spiritual standpoint to work together for the good of those that love him. You don't have to have any doubt when you pray that God is listening. And that God will work in our behalf in those areas that you and I don't have control. You don't have to have any doubt about that. And when you spend your money to contribute to the promotion of the will of God here on this earth, 
You don't have, any, have to have any doubt that you're given to the greatest cause on the face of this earth. You don't have to have any doubt or worry that you may be going to starve to death next week or, or maybe in your old age you will lack something because you gave as you were prospered to God. God makes strong statements there. And when you sit down with individuals that are in your family and are not Christians and your loved ones and your friends, you don't have to have any doubt that you have what they need and you have more evidence for it than anything they'll ever contemplate. You, you can present more evidence for Jesus, I guarantee you, than any car maker can present that his car is the best car or any historian will ever present concerning some event as to whether George Washington chopped down the cherry tree or not or something of that nature. It doesn't stand on this kind of evidence. Did you know that even when it comes to Shakespeare, you cannot prove without a doubt that a man called Shakespeare wrote those works that are attributed to him. Read the scholarly works on it and there's all kinds of debate there. A number of things that you've read about in the life of people like Lincoln and Washington, if you get into the, the scholarly works on it, you'll find that many parts of that are challenged as to what was actually said or done. You just don't have contact with anything that I know of that happened in history that has the kind of evidence that you and I have behind this. God doesn't demand something of us such as complete faith in him and then not give us the power to have that faith. Let's conclude our study for this morning. If you're in the audience as one that is not a Christian, God loves you. Jesus died for you. And God intends for you to be able to know without any doubt in your mind that you could be forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed that you can wash those sins in the blood of Christ and you can live your life knowing that as long as you walk with your trust in Him with an attitude of repentance towards your sin that you can constantly be forgiven and that you can embrace His teaching and live the most successful life that it's possible to live here on this earth. If you're not a Christian and desire to become one, we give you the opportunity as together we stand and sing.